This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. Uh, Today's guest has written a book that is creating quite a buzz. Uh, The book is called Empire of Pain, and it looks at the role of one company, Purdue Pharma, and one family who owned that company, the Sacklers, in terms of the role that they played in creating what we now widely regard as a massive opioid epidemic in America, where almost a half a million people have died over the last 20 years from opioid-related overdoses. Now, Patrick's been a top investigative journalist, uh, a writer for a long time. He's been writing for The New Yorker magazine for the last 15 years. Before this book, he did three other books. One was on global eavesdropping. One was on the Chinatown underground. One was about a murder in Northern Ireland. And he uses these stories of families oftentimes to kind of uh, reflect on broader issues that are going on. So, Patrick, you and I 
I, we crossed paths a few years ago, not in person, but by phone, when you were writing a story about Washington State's efforts to implement the marijuana legalization initiative uh, that I've been involved in, in in 2012. And then I saw you had also written these wonderful stories about the capture and the pursuit of El Chapo, El Chapo Guzman, the notorious Mexican drug trafficker. So I think one thing you and I share in common is this fascination with drugs and drug markets. And just tell me about where you came to this fascination from. Yeah. You know, it probably started with the with the Mexican side of things. I, I wrote a big piece, a cover story for the New York Times Magazine in 2012 about Chapo Guzman and the Sinaloa cartel. And it's funny to think back, but I had to explain to the editors of the New York Times Magazine who Chapo Guzman was and why it was worth writing about him. You know, he he has become more of a household name and a, and a meme, but at the time was not all that well known. And what was interesting to me was that there was a tendency to talk about the illegal drug trade and the Mexican drug syndicates as these criminal organizations, but not to think of them as businesses. And I was really chiefly interested in them as businesses. So that first piece was, I joked, it was like a Harvard Business School case study of a Mexican drug cartel. And that was how I got into it. So I've always been interested in these issues, but maybe particularly these questions about licit and illicit markets and the convergences between them. You know, the, the work I did on Mexican drug cartels, I was most interested in these cartels as multinational commodities, enterprises, doing billions of dollars in business to cater to a you know predominantly North American market. And then in Washington state, I was interested in the idea that you can legalize pot with the stroke of a pen, but the reality is that there has been an underground, a very vibrant underground pot economy for decades. So what happens? You know, what are the implications for not just sort of taxes and regulation, but marketing for growers, for consumers? And then in a weird way, I kind of I worked my way all the way through to the purely licit FDA regulated universe of Purdue Pharma, which for reasons I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, I think the fact that in this case, it's a family of billionaire philanthropists who aren't going to go to jail does nothing in my mind to diminish the, um, the negative consequences of the kind of business they're in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you this. So I'm going to be perfectly frank with you. In reading your book, right, there's this part of me that always is reading through the eye of a devil's advocate. And there's a part of me saying, you know, what are you missing here? What seems unfair? You know, this blaming so much of the opioid crisis on one family and one company. You know, I've seen that over 40 years happen so often with Colombian Mexican drug traffickers being blamed for cocaine or this or that or that or this. And so what I want to do really is two things, because on the one hand, I think you make an incredibly powerful case that Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers really deserve a huge measure of blame and responsibility for what, in fact, has happened in this country over the last 20 years. On the other hand, your book was really interesting to me because I know some of the characters in your book. I mean, some of them I've crossed paths with, some of them I even was friendly with or worked with a bit. I've been sympathetic to the concerns around opiophobia and the pain community. Uh, yet on the other hand, you know, I also got approached by a law firm a couple of years ago that was suing all these pharmaceutical companies and, you know, did a day's worth of consulting for them as well. And I've had my own experiences with pain and my own views about where pain management and and other things can go wrong. So let me first start off by talking about uh, the family. 
I think you said, you know, there are ways in which people have said, my God, it sounds just like that HBO series Succession. Except here you have the the founding members, you know, the older generation born 100 odd years ago, Arthur and Raymond and Mortimer, and then the successive and the ones thereafter. Tell me why you decided to focus on the family. Well, for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, the first thing I would say on the issue of blame, as I make pretty clear in the book, you have an opioid crisis that's lasted for a quarter of a century, half a million people dead. Who knows which statistics you should believe, but by some estimates, two plus million people now struggling with addiction to opioids of one sort or another. You don't get there through the actions of one family alone or, you know, any one bad actor or any set of bad actors, right? It's incredibly complex. And I think it takes a village. You know, there's all kinds of systemic failure. There's all kinds of bad pharmaceutical companies, bad doctors, bad regulators, and on and on. I do think that the Sacklers and their company play a special role as a kind of, uh, they were one of the first movers in this situation in which I think that there's a great deal of blame to go around. I was interested in the origin story of this crisis in how it started. And I think they play a really major role in those early days. And the Sacklers, you know, we can talk about this. I'm sure we will. The Sacklers say in their defense today, listen, the, the opioid crisis today is a heroin and fentanyl crisis. And we don't, you know, we're not in that business. This is illegal drugs being purchased on, on the street. That's not what we did. So don't blame us for those deaths. But again, the, the crisis is interesting, right? Because it, as it, these things do, it starts small and then it morphs and it evolves. As for why I focused on the family itself, I found the family fascinating. I think families are fascinating generally as a subject. It became important to me not to write a book that would be a straightforward book about the opioid crisis, in part because there are a handful of those books out there, some of them Mm -hmm. quite good. I was more interested in a kind of multi-generational family saga. If it were the case that, (laughs) that you had different generations doing different things, I might be less interested. But you get this continuity where the original three Sackler brothers are in the pharma business and I think have a kind of outsized impact, particularly Arthur Sackler, the oldest brother, on the way in which drugs are marketed and sold in this country. Arthur Sackler, who I devote the first third of the book to, he dies before the introduction of OxyContin. But I think there's a lot in his life that we can learn from in terms of what I would argue is the hijacking of medicine by commerce. I think he was very instrumental in creating some of the systems that have done that, that were then used to great effect with OxyContin and and many other drugs. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting as I'm reading it because you're making a link between Arthur Sackler, who's kind of, you know, even though he's the eldest sibling of the three brothers, but he's also kind of a patriarchal figure with the others. He is the guiding genius, the dynamo, the one making the major investments oftentimes and bringing his brothers along. He's regarded as the godfather of medical advertising. He basically creates this almost magically vertically integrated. I mean, he's got advertising. He's got his medical newspapers. He's got the Companies collecting the data, then they buy the pharmaceutical companies. He's got all of these things, um, while at the same time being this extraordinary philanthropist. But as you say, he dies um, before, and his family is not involved with Purdue Pharma once OxyContin comes along. The other character you focus on is Richard Sackler, who is the head of Purdue Pharma and is the the nephew of Arthur and who really drives this thing forward. And I think with Arthur, you described a sort of mix of idealism and greed. 
With Richard, is the balance different? Um, no, actually. No, I don't think so. I think uh, <laughs> Richard is in some ways a less, he's a less attractive character because he doesn't have his uncle's charm. Arthur Sackler was somebody who was a kind of a polymath. He was involved in all kinds of different areas, had a great charisma. Richard doesn't have any of that. So just to back up for a second, I mean, my last book, which is about the troubles in Northern Ireland, is just steeped in moral ambiguity. And there's not a lot of moral ambiguity in this book. I mean, it's pretty clear, I think, to most people reading the book um, where I come down. I think these people did some bad things. Having said that, I'm not interested in caricaturish condemnations of people. I just don't, I don't really particularly want to spend my time as a journalist doing that. I don't know that uh, as a reader, I would want to read, you know, a, a, some kind of a screed about the evil of the Sacklers in which they're all kind of tapping their fingertips together and, and planning their global domination. I think greed was a big part of the cocktail with Richard, but I think idealism was as well. You know, opioids are, are complicated and fascinating, and, and people have known for thousands of years that drugs derived from the opium poppy have tremendous therapeutic benefits, but they've also known that that was twinned with certain dangers, among them addiction. And part of what's so interesting to me about the story of OxyContin and Richard Sackler in particular is that there's a kind of hubris, but also an idealism in their idea that they're like, that was the problem for thousands of years, but we've hacked it. And we figured out how to uncouple the therapeutic upsides from the downsides. And as a consequence, these drugs that had historically been, you know, doctors have been a little more cautious about prescribing them, they should be prescribed, you know, left and right, potentially to tens of millions of Americans. I don't think it was just greed that drove that. You know, I think it was optimism. And where the story gets really interesting for me morally is that what happens when the world starts to tell you, you know, that you were wrong. Mm-hmm. And so where I would be, as an ethical matter, most unforgiving of, of Richard is, is actually not in the first instance where you put the drug out there and you make kind of fantastical claims for it. But it's more what happens when you start hearing that actually people are getting addicted to it in significant numbers yeah. and in many yeah. cases dying. I mean, OxyContin hits the market in a roughly 1997 or so. What was so special about it? And what was the kind of broad strokes about the way this thing emerges for better and for worse? So OxyContin was a a powerful uh, opioid painkiller. It's released in 96, and it was pure oxycodone, which is a a very strong opioid, but with a special coating, which allowed it to disperse into your bloodstream slowly over the course of a number of hours. And so what this meant is that you could have quite big doses of oxycodone. Traditionally, you would have seen oxycodone in drugs like Percodan or Percocet, but there it's cut with acetaminophen or aspirin, which meant that there was a limit to how much you could take. And so here you could get big 60, 80 milligram pills of pure oxycodone with that coating. The drugs released in 96, and you start to see problems almost right away, but you eventually have a situation in which more and more people are abusing OxyContin by crushing the pills, and you can thereby kind of override that uh, slow release mechanism and get the full dose all at once. But people are also in a doctor's care just finding that they're becoming addicted to the drug. So more and more people start becoming uh, addicted, abusing the drug, overdosing, eventually dying. And slowly this kind of controversy builds around OxyContin and Purdue Pharma. During this period, the company keeps doubling down. They never really hesitate in their big marketing push. 
And eventually there's a, a federal guilty plea in 2007 when the company pleads guilty to misbranding the drug, to criminal charges of misbranding the drug, essentially having made claims about its safety that turned out to be fraudulent. And it's interesting because that's sort of this interesting moment in the story where people look back and they think, okay, well, you know, certainly what the company always said was we had a few bad apples prior to 2007. We had the guilty plea and then we really cleaned up our act and beefed up our compliance department and got religion. In 2010, they reformulate the drug, making it harder to crush the pills. And you fast forward to 2020, there's a second guilty plea. So it turns out that, you know, during that period when they supposedly were on the straight and narrow, in fact, they had been going right back to the, the old ways of kind of zealously over-promoting the drug. And so you had a second guilty plea to federal criminal charges in late 2020, covering a period of time that dated back 10 years. So really, this is a kind of a criminal enterprise, this organization. You've got the guilty plea in 2007, another one in 2020, and in between that reformulation in 2010. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let me, um, I'll share with you sort of some of my history in coming to this issue. Um, and first of all, was, you know, I had, it must have been 20 years ago, I actually had dinner with Richard Sackler and his attorney, Howard Udell, um, who ends up having to plead guilty to something or other. And I was introduced by Kathy Foley who was the head of pain management and slow Kettering. And the reason I knew Kathy was that when I started my organization, it was initially part of George Soros' foundation back in 94. And the other project that he helped get started simultaneously with mine, we were really the first two U.S. projects of Soros's, you know, initial philanthropic empire, was a project on death and dying with dignity. And he appointed Kathy to be the head of that project while she was still head of pain management at Sloan Kettering, the leading cancer and, you know, hospital in, in New York. And so I'm kind of educating her about drug policy. And we're talking, I'm more focused on addiction. The pain issue is kind of peripheral. You know, and at one point she introduced me to Richard around 2000, 2001 in the hopes that maybe he would become a supporter of my organization once it had spun out of Soros' foundation. But what was interesting was I had been mostly focused on addiction. And the ways in which opiophobia, the irrational fear of opioids, sometimes got in the way of effective addiction treatment, right? I was aware that, for example, in trying, you know, methadone maintenance was the gold standard of treating drug addiction. National Academy of Science, Institute of Medicine, World Health Organization, you know, you name it, you know, all said this is the way to do it. But the barriers, the stigmatization against methadone, the notion that you were just substituting one addictive opioid for another. In the black community, the notion that this was the chemical bracelet of the white overlords on the black community, the notion that methadone should only be used to get you off of heroin, but that it should not be a long-term maintenance drug. You know, meeting people who would say, hey, don't blame me for methadone being my daily medication. Um, I'm no more a methadone addict than a diabetic is an insulin addict. This is my daily medication. I don't get high, and I'm probably going to take it for the rest of my life. So when I come into this pain field, which I never fully do, but on the edges of it, I'm very conscious of the ways in which you know opioids can be highly dependent-causing and addictive, but that they have a very important role to play. And now we even see, you know, now there's this huge push to get all the people who are addicted to drugs onto methadone or buprenorphine. So when I look at the pain field, I see on the one hand the sense in which there's a really legitimate concern that Purdue Pharma and that Richard Sackler are tapping into. But what I find so persuasive about your book 
is the incredibly over-marketing, aggressive marketing, duplicity, dishonesty, lying, manipulation of regulators and all this sort of stuff, which led them to promote an incredibly valuable breakthrough medication, OxyContin, right, which, which huge numbers of pain patients were feeling, you know, this was the greatest thing that ever happened to them. But the company and the Sacklers promote it in a way which is grossly disproportionate to its appropriate need in the community. So anyway, your reactions to my whole riff there. Um, it's hard, right? Because the, um, you know, you use the phrase, the opiophobia, the irrational, uh, you know, irrational fear. Fear of opioids. And yeah. It's, you know, um, with half a million people dead, it's hard for me to say it, it's entirely irrational, right? I think that these are powerful medications, which I think have important therapeutic uses. I, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination a prohibitionist, really, when it comes to any drugs. You know, there are some people, including some doctors, who think oh, we really shouldn't use strong opioids at all for chronic pain and what have you. And that's not, I, to me, like, I don't even need to get there in this book, because those are debates that people are having. And, and for me, it's a question of, you know, marketing, fraudulent marketing, excessive marketing, and careless overprescribing. And I don't think at this point, you would find anyone, including, frankly, people like Kathy Foley, who would dispute the notion that part of the reason we got here was because of overprescribing. The Sacklers still maintain that OxyContin is not, iatrogenically, it's, it's just not addictive or, you know, addictive only 1% of the time. I think most people have retired that as a conjecture, that particular mm -hmm. statistic. For me, the, you know, th there's a whole bunch of pieces to this, but part of it is that if you have a therapy that is powerful, that has tremendous therapeutic upsides, but also potential downsides, it should be prescribed carefully and marketed carefully. And that a situation in which you have an army of sales reps going out with a bunch of literature that in retrospect turns out to be dodgy, telling physicians who are not pain specialists that there are no side effects to this drug, you know, that's a dangerous situation. And I've interviewed plenty of docs who were on the receiving end of this. And, and I think there's a whole bunch of problems here, right? One is that doctors should ideally not be receiving their education in a, in a new course of therapy purely from the pharmaceutical company that is selling the course of therapy. You know, if you're a doctor, probably you should do a little more due diligence than that. The pharma companies, and, you know, Purdue is hardly alone here, I think had a very strong incentive to educate physicians about how to get people on these drugs. And what I've heard again and again and again, as I'm sure you have, is that there was a kind of education in how to get people on these drugs, but no education in how or when to get them off. You know, maybe people should be on them for years. Maybe they shouldn't. Do you taper? How do you go about that? And what the story you hear again and again, in this case, I've heard it from families and people who've, who've experienced this firsthand, is that you, know, you go and you get a procedure done and the doc writes you a prescription for whatever, 30 days of an opioid, and you find that your use of it is becoming problematic. You start getting nervous because, you know, either it's wearing off and you want to take the pills more frequently, or you're finding that you're experiencing withdrawal. You go back to the emergency medicine doc who prescribed it to you, and the doctor says, well, whoa, whoa, I'm not an addiction specialist. My job mm -hmm. is to get you on here, not to get you off. 
And I think a lot of people end up in a kind of perilous situation in which the nature of medicine as it is practiced in the United States is such that if you offer up a solution that seems like a quick, reliable solution with minimal downsides that will get somebody off your schedule so you can then see the next patient, a lot of doctors, I think, were very ready to do that. And you end up with a, a huge community of people who are kind of orphaned by the system because, you know, the drugs are having side effects for them. And they don't, there's no infrastructure for how to help them with that, how to help them figure that out. There's a whole other thing which we can talk about, which is, you know, the, the big community of pain patients now who feel as though the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction, that opiophobia is back, that their physicians don't want to continue prescribing these medicines that they feel they, they rely on in order to live their lives. I get a lot of notes from these people. Almost invariably, they haven't read my book. I mean, there's a great deal of nuance in the book. And if you're reading it carefully, I think it'd be difficult to, to say otherwise. But from a distance, it's, look, you're bashing the Sacklers. They sold a life-saving medicine. You know, you're, you're contributing to the stigma. And of course, I think if you look closely, part of the reason that a lot of these people are stigmatized is precisely because of the kind of behavior that you saw at, at Purdue. You know, Pedro, I mean, you're right. It is a complex story. You know, on the one hand, right, you know, the people who specialized in pain management, they knew that opioids were, could be dependent causing, right? That if you do, if people are on it for any length of time, they have to go through some withdrawal if they're going to get off of it. That's just sort of part of the course, right? And the people who are expert in this stuff knew that you have to manage that. You manage getting on, you manage getting off. And in a way, you know, they were frustrated. Because they are, they're seeing other doctors and patients and nurses who saying, I don't want to take opioids. People who are terminally ill on their deathbeds said, I don't want to die an addict. You know, evidence that people are dying prematurely because they, they have this, you know, you know, fear of morphine or this fear of being addicted. They're not making a distinction between what it means to be dependent on drugs and being addicted to them. But then what you describe is basically Purdue Pharma it's not just trying to address the issue that they were dealing with, the pain docs. What you describe is them deliberately going not after the pain management docs, but going after GPs who didn't know their ass from their elbow about this stuff. What you describe is them targeting the biggest prescribers, not people who are specialized pain management experts, but people who are just shipping the stuff out, right? What you describe is them lying to people about the potential addictiveness of these substances. I mean, I think that's where you nail these guys about just playing a grossly irresponsible role that whereas on the one hand, they're providing a kind of miracle medication for people who really do benefit from a long-acting pain medication like OxyContin, they are so grossly over-promoting it to people who shouldn't be on it that that's where a big chunk of this blame lies. Yeah, no question. Look, this is a company that has pled guilty to felony charges twice. Uh, in 2007 and in 2020. And I, and I would argue, um, and I think I make the, the, the case, I, I hope, in a pretty compelling way in the book, that in both instances, they actually got off. They got off pretty easy, uh, particularly compared to the kinds of penalties that we visit in this country on uh, poor people of color who are involved in uh, the, the retail mm -hmm. drug business on the street. I'll put it to you this way. <laughs> When you talk about marketing to the wrong docs, you know, I wanted this book to be a compelling read for uh, non-specialists. I, you know, I, I hope it uh, holds water with specialists as well. Um, you know, I think there's, there's some rigor to it, but you make choices, right? And I had to remind myself, you know, you're not writing an indictment here where you want to take every single piece of evidence and put it in. 
What this meant is that I had to pick my examples and I had to be pretty judicious about it. If you just take a fact pattern, okay, so the fact pattern is there is a clinic, a pain clinic that is obviously a pill mill. You have a super unethical doctor who is just fire hosing pills at the local community. And, you know, eventually in the fullness of time, this doctor will lose their license and end up going to jail. But before that happens, there's a period of time where Purdue is aware of what's happening because they have this early warning system, which is their own reps who go out and call on these doctors and write reports and they come back and they, they tell them about it. You know, it was a real struggle for me to think, okay, I can only tell so many of those stories. There were so many to pick. It was like a vast buffet of that fact pattern where I'm thinking, oh, geez, do I do the one in Massachusetts? Mm -hmm. Or what about the one in California? Or, oh, but there's this interesting one over here. It happened again and again and again and again and again. So I'll tell you what to me was one of the most astonishing data points that I discovered. And it's, it's like just in the weeds enough that I think most people don't necessarily appreciate how crazy it is, how wild it is, but you will. So in 2010, Purdue reformulates OxyContin. The whole notion with OxyContin is that you had this seal, which slowly regulates the dispersal of the drug into your bloodstream in theory over the course of 12 hours, though there's a lot of evidence that it actually doesn't last that long for a lot of patients. People quickly figured out that if you break the seal by chewing it or crushing it, you can override that slow release mechanism and then you can snort the pill. Even if you just swallow it or if you shoot it up, you know, you get an immediate huge dose of, of oxycodone. So in 2010, the company reformulates the drug. There's pretty good evidence, which I lay out in the book, that the timing here is significant because the patent was about to run out on the original version. Um, and so they're going to make this reformulated version. But this is the interesting statistic. 2010, they roll out this new pill. Overnight, nationwide, sales of 80 milligram OxyContin pills dropped 25%. So you have to think about this, right? On the one hand, good for Purdue, reformulating the pills. People were abusing those, the original version. On the other hand, how could that not be sobering to realize that 25% of their market for their biggest dose of this drug was basically coming from the black market, right? It was people who were abusing the drug. It's non-medical prescriptions, it's pill mills. And this is where it gets really interesting to me is that you have all these pill mills. The company knows that they're pill mills. They actually kept a list internally of these, these bad docs. And what they said is that they said, oh, our, our sales reps wouldn't call on them. That's what we would do is we would tell our sales reps, well, don't call on those, on those pill mills. Of course, I interviewed sales reps who were like, you didn't have to call on, like they were pretty reliable prescribers. You didn't need to go and visit them in order to make that happen. What they don't do is report those pill mills to the authorities. And, and the reason is pretty obvious, right? If 25% of your profits on your most profitable pill are coming from the black market, you have a pretty strong incentive not to shut these operations down. And so I think that's part of the reason that you see the black market persist the way it does is with, again, the mingling of the licit and illicit. Yeah. I mean, Patrick, I'm almost thinking, you know, you think about that article you did in New Yorker where you and I talked some years ago about how Washington State was transitioning from an illicit market to a legal market. And here, a part of your story is about the transition from a legal market into an illegal market. Absolutely. Right? Whether it's Purdue Pharma changing the nature of OxyContin so that you can't crush it and snort it or inject it anymore, it becomes a little... 
gummy bear that you can't do much with, or whether it's just doctors now beginning to realize you're being pressured to prescribe less, which you see is a shift happening. And so one of the interesting things about that moment is that Purdue, all of a sudden, as you say, loses 25% of its sales because that's the 25% of the market that was looking to crush it and use it entirely illegally. Yet at the same time, that also results in a growth, if not an explosion, of the market first in heroin and then ultimately fentanyl. And it actually leads to an increase in the number of overdose fatalities, right, um, after this happens. And so from a policy perspective, it's almost like damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, I was reading your thing there, and I'm going, God, would the world have been better off if Purdue Pharma had never gotten permission to do this non-crushable version? I mean, I don't look, I don't know. It's hard to say. The the counterfactual that I'm more <laughs> I'm more comfortable with is had they reformulated earlier, I do think it would have made a much bigger difference. Mm-hmm. You know, in fairness to them, they say it just takes a long time to develop these drugs. It also took several years for them to get approval from the FDA. So, you know, I mean, the, t- mm-hmm. the timing with the patent does seem worth ruminating. Well, I mean, I have to say, you know, oftentimes you say on these investigations, like in drugs, you know, follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. It's always what the cops and the investigators always say. And for you, the subtext to follow the money is follow the patent, right? I mean, you talk about they start off with MS content and then they go to OxyContin and then reformulated OxyContin. I mean, just explain a little bit about the timing of that and how that looks from your perspective. Yeah, just that. I mean, I I think that this will sound uh, probably a bit naive, but to me, there was this interesting thing where anytime there was a mystery about timing, you know, why did it take so long for them to reformulate? Or why did this happen at that time? Or there was this kind of strange thing that I talk about at the end of the book where the company wanted to get a pediatric indication for OxyContin, but then they said, but we don't actually want to sell it. We're just doing it because the FDA forced us to. But then it turns out the FDA didn't really force them to. It was more that they were incentivized to because if they got the pediatric indication, they would get six months of extra patent exclusivity, which at the time, you know, was a billion dollars. So it was just one of those interesting things where often if I had a question, the more I dug, the more documents I got, uh, it was very often the case that the answer was, oh, it has to do with the patent at a company like Purdue, where they really only ever had one huge blockbuster product in the whole history of the company. Nothing ever came close to OxyContin. I interviewed many, many people who worked at the company who said that the whole business model was protect the patent, extend the patent. Uh, I had somebody who worked at the company, a senior person who worked at the company who said to me, at times it almost felt like it wasn't a pharma company at all. It was a small elite patent law firm, uh, like an intellectual property law firm that happened to have a little marketing wing on the side. So um, when you talk about the counterfactual and you wonder what if, I think the thing for me is there were these really crucial moments early on where the company was lying about the drug. They were lying about what they knew and when they knew it. And I think if there had been a real reckoning in 2001, 2002, 2003, if you'd seen an earlier reformulation, the population of people who had you know, taken that on-ramp to opioids was just smaller at that point. And so it could have been that the reformulation would have made more of a difference. But by the time you get to 2010, you just have a huge population of folks who are struggling with these drugs and using them in, an, in a non-medical way. And at that point, if you, if you cut those people off from a source of supply that they've counted on, 
I mean, it's, honestly, it's the same thing. So it's, you could say this about the reformulation, but it was also true that by 2010, a lot of the pill mills are getting shut down. A lot of docs are getting care more careful about prescribing. And that too, I think, pushed people into the black market. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. There are two broader contexts to what's going on here. And there's one which I think you probably could have given more attention to, and the other one which I think you lay out in spectacular and telling detail. And on the first one, you know, there's a context back in the 90s that basically, whether we're talking about addiction treatment or pain management, both those issues are essentially not being taught in medical schools. And most physicians know remarkably little about that, much less how to manage opioids whether putting people on or putting people off to those things. What's also happening is that the vast majority of what are called overdoses are, in fact, fatal drug combinations. In fact, very few people die simply from taking too much heroin or too much OxyContin. Almost all of those overdoses involve people combining it with Valium, with benzodiazepines, with alcohol. And it's only when fentanyl comes along, which is 50 times more potent than heroin or, or Oxy or whatever, that you see people dropping dead simply from using it one opioid all by itself. Um, naloxone, 
the antidote for an overdose. I mean, my organization started working on trying to get that more out there really beginning in 1999, 2000. But it's not until about 2010 or 11 where even the White House, the drug czar's office says, oh, we better start getting behind naloxone. So there's this massive um, misinformation, miseducation, undereducation that's going out in the community, which provides a context in where when you have a company over-promoting this drug and over-marketing and all the insidious ways that they did is just going into a place that's ripe to magnify this. On the other hand, what you do a magnificent job of in the book is describing the revolving door of government and industry, right? The swamp, the people who go to work from FDA or DEA or Justice Department, all next thing you know, they're working for Purdue Pharma, the members of Congress, the the ways in which Purdue Pharma is able to get what it wants by paying and legally bribing people, maybe even illegally, we don't know. But I mean, you know, this sort of really insidious way and in a culture where white collar criminality almost never results in incarceration. So the black and brown people are going to prison, you know, by the millions for selling drugs no more dangerous than these on the black market. But the white collar folks are basically walking away scot-free. I don't know if you want to just tell some of the most things that most shocked you when you were looking at that side of things. Oh, I mean, let me say one thing about mixing first and fentanyl. I, you know, fentanyl now, you know, who knows what's in it? I mean, in fact, you buy heroin on the street. Who knows what's in it? It may be cut with fentanyl. You don't even know it. And you talk to uh, drug users. People are aware. They're aware of the risks, but they also, a lot of the time, just end up in a situation in which they don't have a safe or reliable source of supply, but they need it. When they started, they were taking a pill. And it, you know, not necessarily, it could have been a Vicodin. It could have been you know, any number of things, right? But something that felt like it had the imprimatur of the FDA, it felt like a kind of a creature of a regulated system. It's funny because this is a, you know, this was one of the things I was interested in in the, in the pot story with Washington State too, right? Is these questions of like, to what extent does regulation mean quality control, you know, and the government kind of getting in and evaluating the product in a way that you would normally associate with kind of an FDA regulated industry. I, I just, it's interesting to me that you, I think you end up with a lot of people who, had a certain level of inhibition when they started. And the on-ramp was a pharmaceutical product, which they could kind of live with as an experiment because it seemed safe. And I think in many instances, these are people who wouldn't be mixing on the front end, who wouldn't be just, you know, taking what they could buy from the guy who's the connection that you have in the moment. But you get into the grip of these things and your judgment can falter. Right. I mean, like from the outside, as somebody who who is not addicted or dependent, it's sometimes hard for me to understand, given what we know about fentanyl specifically, the risks that some people take. But I think the thing to remember is that they, you know, generally speaking, and that's not the first thing people take. It takes a while to get there on the (laughs) on the revolving door. Man, I don't know where to start. I mean, I, you know, everywhere I looked um, and again, it's not just Purdue, but. There is so much money here. You know, OxyContin has generated $35 billion in revenue since 1996. When you have that much money, I just think that it affects everything and that the corruption very seldom looks like the kind of standard corruption that we think about when we talk about corruption and and the kind of corruption that gets prosecuted. You know, there's a story I tell in the book about Curtis Wright, who was 
the, the medical examiner at the FDA in charge of approving OxyContin, but also approving the specific marketing language that could be used in the package insert for OxyContin. Mm-hmm. He approves the drug in record time. He signs off on this crazy marketing claim that nobody will own it now. You know, there's this line that goes in the original package insert that says that the time release coding is believed to reduce the abuse liability of the drug. That is like vis-a-vis other opioids that were on the market at that time priceless marketing claim, no basis in, I mean, is believed. Like, what does that even mean? Who believes it? Nobody's been able to figure out how did that line get in there? Just the very idea that a line like that makes it into the package insert. And 25 years later, nobody can say who wrote it and how it got in there and how it got approved. So Curtis Rice leaves the FDA and a year later goes to work at Purdue Pharma for three times his government salary. And that I, I continually find shocking. The, the Sacklers often defend themselves by saying, you know, we, the, the FDA signed off on the stuff we were doing. And I'm like, well, if you, if you hire the guy right after he leaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Patrick, you know, uh, I was watching last couple of nights this documentary by Alex Gibney in which you feature prominently uh, the crime of the century. And he describes an uh, even more atrocious episode involving the chief counsel of DEA working for the Office of Diversion Control, who goes to work for the pharmaceutical companies. And then you describe people in the Justice Department and U.S. attorneys who've been processing these cases and flipped to the other side, right? I mean, the revolving door is just—and and you're talking also, I mean, you're a wide range of personalities who go to work for Purdue Pharma, because on the one hand, it's one of America's greatest scumbags, Rudy Giuliani, but at a point in his life when he's actually fairly credible after he's just become— America's mayor. On the other hand, you have Mary Jo White, who was the very distinguished former U.S. attorney in New York, the former head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, everybody answers her phone call and she's out there as, you know, Ms. Credibility on, on this sort of thing. But, you know, there's also an element where you're describing as a sort of systemic stink pot of kind of de facto corruption, buddyism, crony capitalism, all this sort of stuff. And then there's the quirkiness of personalities. I was wondering about the specific personality of Richard Sackler, right? I mean, he is the driving force. You point out that he kind of learns these lessons from his uncle, Arthur, in terms of marketing. But you also describe this thing about his, you know, best friend in his freshman year of college, who describes him as sort of lacking in empathy, right? And even when you see the things that, you know, you have these emails where he's saying these absolutely atrocious things about people who are addicted to drugs. You know, you see the videotape of his testimony and there's something just off about it. And now obviously it was a family enterprise, but he is the driver. And I wonder how much you had that feeling, like would a different human being maybe done some things differently at the start or maybe not, you know, circled the wagons in the same way. I mean, what do you think about that? So, yeah, I mean, a a few things. To go back to what I said earlier about how I I have no interest in caricatures, the human complication Mm -hmm. and the individual human complication and the way it plays out inside a family, all of that to me was rich and interesting and worth capturing. And I do think that personality drives events a lot of the time in history. and, And so it's important to understand that. Um, I'm also glad you mentioned the college roommate, because if you remember, the college roommate didn't just say that he lacked empathy. He also said that Richard had an infectious enthusiasm. When he had an idea, he would just plunge headlong after that idea, and he could lead others along in pursuit of that idea. And to me, that's part of what explains how all this happened as well, that in his own weird way, he was a leader. You know, he had a vision for what this drug could be, and he didn't really want to let it go. I think that in some ways, if if Purdue Pharma had been a public 
company. Mm-hmm. The story would have played out much differently. I think you could very well have gotten up to 2007 with the guilty plea in 2007. But I think things would have changed after 2007 at a public company. I think all of the folks who were associated with the bad stuff that happened in the past would have been purged. And instead, they were kept on. And, you know, there was this weird, I interviewed multiple people who said, who came into the company after 2007, who said, it was this weird thing where on the one hand, they're saying, oh, there was this guilty plea, and now we do things differently. And on the other hand, there's this ongoing veneration for all the people who did all the stuff that got us to the guilty plea. And so there were just mixed messages about the culture. And I think this was a family business, and it was a business kind of created in the image of the family. The one thing I would say is I wouldn't put too much of it on Richard because there's a bunch of family members who were involved from multiple generations. And as a reporter, when I started work on this book, I had this operating theory, which is I thought I kind of did the family tree. I looked at all the different people and I said, there's got to be some apostate. There's got to be some Sackler who grew up with it. They grew up with the money, but they actually think that there's something kind of rotten happening. They understand why every state in the country is suing the family business and half the states are suing the family members themselves. And I couldn't find one. And it's remarkable the unanimity with which members of the family who don't agree on anything else, like this is a warring family often, uh, when it comes to the utter blamelessness of the Sacklers, they're pretty much in agreement. And you see these incredible, there's a, there's a document that I draw on in the book, this amazing um WhatsApp log that I got access to, which was like a family WhatsApp of a sort that, you know, anybody might have with their family. And you have a whole bunch of different descendants of Mortimer Sackler texting each other on this WhatsApp log. In part, it looks like because they think that that'll be harder to get in discovery. Of course, they were wrong about that, which is how I (laughs) got access to it. But um, there's over a year of these texts back and forth. And nowhere does any single member say in this private zone of this family WhatsApp, hey, geez, maybe the critics have a point or not even not even something that far, but maybe we should think about our own conduct. Is there something yeah. we missed? Those types of questions that that I'm sure you and, and, and I and probably others listening, just because you're a normal human being, like you think about your own actions and the decisions. You wonder if you did the right thing. I think this is a family that seems largely impervious to that particular You make a very persuasive case about that, but let me just press you a bit, right? Because it seems to me there's almost like these concentric circles, right, of maybe guilt or responsibility. And that on the one hand, Richard is a driving figure. He's basically the CEO and he's got his brother and he's got the cousins and there's some nephews and there's a bunch of others involved. And they're they're a sort of a second circle who are bear a large share of the responsibility. They're involved in managing and micromanaging the company as well. Richard's very much the driver. Then you get to the third circle, which is sort of the the third generation, the younger one. And you portray one of the characters, a young woman who makes, I think, an award-winning documentary about the need for criminal justice reform. And the question about, well, should she be held more responsible. And, you know, I'm thinking about, like, you think about the families, the Fords, the Rockefellers, the big empires, and eventually the grandchildren's generation after the founder's dead, you know, they may speak out or condemn what their ancestors did. But here you're still talking about a family that leads the two branches, the Raymond and Mortimer, who were involved with Purdue Pharma, where, you know, I wonder what you or I would have done in that similar situation, right? I mean, here you're still going to your family Christmas or Seder's or whatever, and this sort of thing, you know, if they have nothing to do with the family except having benefited from the money and they're out there trying to do good in the world, do they have an obligation to speak out? And then there's the kind of fourth circle 
right? And it, this is actually involves somebody I know, Elizabeth Sackler, right? And Elizabeth Sackler, I've only met her a few times, but initially, it was about 20 years ago, I was doing some fundraising for Drug Policy Alliance. I was in the early stages of fundraising, and I was at some group of liberal, you know, wealthy wealthy liberals. And in that moment, you know, there's a challenge grant, and Liz goes, oh, I'll give 25 grand, right? So that was great. She makes this contribution, and we have dinner thereafter. And I try to bring her in in a bigger way with Drug Policy Alliance, and I'm not all that successful at it, although about 10 years ago, I get her to co-chair a fundraising event. We do an art auction, and she's at that point chairing the Brooklyn Museum, and she's bringing in feminist artists and all this sort of stuff. And she's pretty alienated from the other wing of the family that owns Purdue Pharma, and they have no for-profit interest in it. She's the daughter of Arthur, who's the kind of godfather of the whole thing, but had no direct involvement in Purdue Pharma and all this sort of stuff. And she is actually openly condemning Purdue Pharma and what they did. I mean, she's putting out- She has since one. Oh, no. I mean, you look, if you look her up, she says these very hostile statements about it. Those statements started just after my New Yorker piece came out. Uh Uh-huh. But that's when the Sackler family becomes, I mean, that's, you can understand somebody wanted to keep a low profile. But But I should say, nothing in the New Yorker piece from Elizabeth uh, expressing even a whisper of disapproval and uh, and no, and if you I, and you should and and I I I won't say what you know I I would never um, divulge too much but you have to ask whether that's because I didn't bother trying to see if she had an opinion on it. Well, look, I can also imagine that at, you still at this point you say it's really your article and another one in Esquire where it come out that time that exposed them in that way. You can see people wanting to lie low, but when she does come out with a pretty strong statement condemning, um, and then Nan Golden the artist who is inspired by your article to really go after the Sacklers and organize public, you know, demonstrations at the museums against them. And she looks at what Elizabeth Sackler said when she goes, you know what, the hell with her, the whole family's evil. And I wonder, like, what do you think? I mean, would you agree with my analysis of the sort of concentric circles of responsibility? Yeah, the concentric circles is perfect because I would say, you know, circle number one would be richer and arguably mm-hmm. a few of the other board members who are very intimately involved. Then there's kind of board members who were on the board, but maybe less immediately involved or people like David Sackler, Richard's son, who, you know, came mm-hmm. in at a, a little bit later, but, you know, I think very uh, instrumental. <laughs> then there's uh, yeah. the Sacklers who have, you know, stood to benefit, made huge fortunes on OxyContin, but not on the board, and they do other things with their life. And then there's the Arthur family. Um, Yeah, I mean, to take the Madeline example first. As the filmmaker, right? Yeah, the filmmaker. I think reasonable people can differ on this. And I mean, Joss Sackler, who's David's wife, who's a kind of, you know, wannabe fashion designer, she's another good example of this too, where there's a guy who's who's involved in... um, Film financing. We did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter a while ago, another third generation Sackler. And what he said, he literally said something like, oh, it has nothing to do with me. You know, the company, the controversy, it has nothing to do with me. And he has a, f- a film financing fund. And, you know, to my knowledge, no independent source of income that would, would fund mm-hmm. that fund. And so to me, the interesting thing is the premise that you could benefit to the tune of tens, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars from something and say, oh, but it has nothing to do with me. It seems a little hard to, you know, it seems a little hard for me to swallow. One of the great themes I've always been interested in, and it's one of the continuities between this book and the IRA book that I wrote is denial. And I think particularly in families, a lot of the time what that means is that there are questions that don't get asked. So I would hazard that for a lot of the third generation Sacklers, it probably does feel like it doesn't have anything to do with them. You know, there's money that, that appears in a trust for their benefit and they've never had to worry about that. And they don't ask a lot of questions about where it comes from. And they may not ask too many questions about the business or what it's done without 
getting into too much detail, I can tell you that I know with certainty that there are a number of Sacklers from multiple generations who just kind of don't read the bad press. They didn't read Barry Meyer's book, Painkiller. They didn't read the coverage in the New York Times, didn't read the big LA Times series, didn't read Sam Quinones' book, Dreamland. They certainly probably wouldn't be reading my book. Um, but so there's a kind of willful blindness aspect of it, right? Where it's one thing to say, I have fully engaged with the details. This is what David Sackler does, in fairness to him, the third generation Sackler, the only third generation one who's on the board. He says, I've engaged with all the details and I want to have the argument with you. You're wrong. You know, you misunderstand our family. It's another thing to say, oh, I'm, I've just never been all that curious about that side of things. I just take the money and I don't ask any questions. My interests lie in, in Hollywood. That to me seems wrong. I mean, I, you know, I, and it's not to say that the blame is anywhere near what it would be for a Richard Sackler, but I think there is, if what you are doing is taking the money, no matter what you're spending the money on and not really engaging at all with the origins of it. So again, this is different from saying, I think mistakes were made. Our family businesses pled guilty to criminal charges twice. There's a huge epidemic, which we share some portion of the blame for. I'm going to redirect this money that I've inherited in order to remediate that or expiate that guilt. Nobody's saying that. What they're saying is, mm -hmm. I'm interested in film. Mass incarceration is my issue. You know, Ethan, better than most, that to talk about mass incarceration and say, we're just going to cabin the war on drugs. We're not going to talk about the war on drugs. We're just going to talk about mass incarceration and exclude the war on drugs as an issue. It's just like the height of intellectual dishonesty. There's no way. Yeah, no, no, I, I hear you, Patrick. I just wonder what you and I would do if we were born into that kind of family and we and we were ashamed of it and right. we wanted to get on with our lives. We were happy about the money. We want to do good in the world. You know, taking on this means, oh my God, and then I'm going to go see my family for the next uh, Christmas party or Briss or Seder or I you know. name it. And as, it's why I also think that that Arthur generation, because, you know, interesting about Arthur, you know, you tell a story about him and Valium and how what he does with Valium is almost a model for what then Richard and Purdue Pharma does with OxyContin, right? I think that's what Nan Golden was getting at when she said, okay, so yes, Arthur Sackler died before the introduction of OxyContin, but to suggest that his, that his hands were clean mm -hmm. when in fact, you know, uh, he was so instrumental in kind of building the world in which OxyContin could end up doing what it did is disingenuous. My sense is that that's what she was in a hyperbolic way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. But I also think about Arthur also fits within a context of mid-century and even current day crony capitalism, that his story may be not that different from so many other major industries, from banking to oil to alcohol, tobacco to consumer goods, to you name it, where people figured out all sorts of, of legal and sometimes quasi-illegal ways to engage in, you know, forms of vertical integration in their businesses and in which they live these kind of double lives and moral double lives. And it doesn't justify it. I mean, as somebody also had to spend 20 years of my life or 17 years of my life raising money from wealthy people from across the political spectrum to try to end the war on drugs, you know, you realize that people are complex. They come from all sorts of different places, much better the people who want to put their wealth, even if it was ill-gotten by their ancestors, the ones who want to put it to reducing incarceration or ending the drug war or promoting good stuff are so much better human beings than the ones who just want to spend it on yachts and mansions and things like that. And that ratio of how much you're willing to put into meaningful philanthropy as opposed to how much you just want to live lives of luxury. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, complicated issues, part of the reason I find them interesting. Believe me, I've spent a lot of time talking to people at museums and universities who are really, 
you know, they're in a real bind about what to do with the Sacklers and they worry about if they take down the Sackler name, then what kind of precedent does that set? And does it worry other potential future donors and so forth? I think the issue for me is, can you stand by it when the truth is out there and known? Or does the sort of happy families, we all get along at the family reunion, you know, we'll happily accept your money for our foundation or our university. Is that premised on a kind of denial or a sort of a desire to cover up or only whisper about the source of the funds? You know, there have been some more, more so in the UK, there have been some institutions, Oxford University among them, where they've really come out in a kind of full-throated way and said, hell yeah, we love the Sacklers. We'll take more of their money. They're great. They've been great friends to us. And yes, we know that all this reporting is out there. And yes, we know that a lot of people seem to be pretty convinced that this is a family with a you know a pretty poisonous legacy, but we stand by them. And I actually think there's an argument that an institution could make that, you know, people have certainly made it to me in philanthropy that you can take the dirtiest money in the world and you know give it to me and let me spend it on something good. And that's better than the alternative, which is these people not giving their money away, which I, I think is what you were saying. That's a powerful, not insurmountable, but a powerful argument to make with the one asterisk that I think you have to first acknowledge that the money is dirty. If the way in which you sort of square the circle is to say, ah, dirty, yes, there's been some reporting, but who can trust the New York Times? You know, really, it's a he said, she said situation. There's two sides to every story. Um, once you start going down that road in order to justify taking the money, uh, you've kind of lost me. And I think that a lot of people for a long time did just that. Even Tufts. Mm -hmm. I read about Tufts in the book. Tufts, the first university to take the Sackler name down. And they got a lot of good press for that. You know, the student body was really happy because the students had demanded it. But, you know, five years ago, when Sam Quinones published Dreamland, it was supposed to get assigned as reading for, I think, incoming students. Mm -hmm. And the administration quietly scuttled that because they said, yeah, that, that, that's despicable. we don't want to create any awkwardness for our donors. So you're not, it's not that you're denying yeah. the book or you're saying, oh, the book is garbage. What you're saying is the book is out there. It almost hits too hard. We don't want to create any awkwardness for our donors. Yeah. Well, you know, so let me take it back to one other issue of the uh, intersection of money here. And, you know, you described this, I think, with some nuance in the book, which is that a mutuality of interest emerges at some point. You have the people like the Kathy Foley's leading pay, the pain management community and then a bigger community of people who are living with pain for whom being, having it managed by opioids or other way is they're doing so successfully. And other people are angry at not having their pain, right? And there's essentially little to no funding to support those efforts. And then along comes Richard Sackler, who sees this opportunity here, right? He has a drug, MS-Contin and OxyContin, and he makes common interest with these folks. And so they say, oh my God, now we have a wealthy family and pharmaceutical company that's willing to get behind our efforts to educate physicians and to change these policies. And he sees somebody whose interests are advancing his, his own. And in a way, it's a dance, right? And to some extent, the pain management community gets taken for a ride when it turns out that the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma want to market this drug in a way that is not at all what they intended. And at the same time, there is this need for more education on this stuff and more to do the right, find, find the balance. Right. And in America, we tend to swing between these poles. You know, either it's all opiophobia or it's opioids are fine if it's OxyContin. And now we're swinging back the other way. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. 
With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. You had towards the end of the book the story about when uh, Purdue Pharma is obliged to make a big settlement in Oklahoma. Right. I mean, bigger than in most other states that they don't want to be a model for others. And the money's all going to go to drug treatment and all this sort of stuff. And my thought was, what a goddamn waste, because from everything I know about Oklahoma, there is almost nothing really innovative going on about drug treatment in Oklahoma. You know, and that their approach to drugs is an abstinence only backward anti-scientific approach. And I'm thinking if only that money could be spent on, for example, Instead of focusing just on addiction treatment, maybe focusing on the proper management of pain in our society, maybe teaching GPs, maybe getting that out so it's not just center of disease control, CDC guidelines, but actually educating people. Because my fear here is that with all the backlash, first against the big pharma, in which your book plays a key role and it's a very important and necessary thing to happen, and not just against Purdue Pharma, but the Johnson & Johnsons and the Mallinckrodt's and the Endos and all the other ones, right? But meanwhile, here's fentanyl. You know, here's heroin. There's no way to have a supply-side solution to the fentanyl problem, right? The drug is just too hard to really prevent from being made available. The question is, is how does one most effectively point these resources? And my fear is the way that all these settlements are happening right now, it's going to land up doing relatively little to address the problem that we got ourselves into in the first place. I think this is one of the big fears with tobacco. You know, a lot, a lot of this money ended up just in the general funds for the states. So, you know, you're out there mm -hmm. uh, helping repave highways um, and totally disconnected from what's going on. You know, the tricky thing with the Sacklers in particular in Purdue is that there is so much skepticism about money that went into 
education on pain management, I think appropriate skepticism, that anything that even resembled that cosmetically, even if it was much smarter and, you know, devoid of commercial interests, I think would probably raise hackles. Um, but I, but I, listen, I, you know, what's so sad about this situation is that you have a public health crisis that's you know, cost trillions of dollars. And because of the country we live in, it's going to get resolved with money. You know, that's money on the way in, money on the way out. And there's no sum of money that's going to be satisfying. A, because, you know, in the case of the Sacklers or any of these companies, you know, they're walking away having made much more. If you put it against the money that they made through the fraudulent activity, it's, you know, pennies on the dollar. But also because when you think about the costs, right, and the human toll, at the end of the day, the opioid business, as much as it's had this catastrophic impact, it's not like the tobacco industry. There's less money just in total to work with. So you're not going to see um, settlements on the scale that you have with tobacco. And then finally, there are real questions about how that money is going to get spent. And, you know, I, I think those should be a big concern for people. And I think that, you know, if you've read my book, there are a few places where you get these headlines where that, I mean, my, the easiest example to talk about would be just a few months ago in late 2020, end of the Trump administration, they announced an $8 billion fine with criminal sanctions against Purdue Pharma, an $8 billion settlement. And of course, people see that and they think, wow, good for DOJ. They really stuck it to Purdue. And you have to know the story to know that Purdue doesn't have $8 billion. And the Sacklers who do have $8 billion, they weren't going to be kicking in. So it's just like a fake number that gets repeated again and again in, in headlines. And to me, at my most cynical, I worry that this is the way it's gonna work, right? Is that you get authorities who wanna kind of squeeze just enough, as much as they can in the way of money out. And then they wanna put out press releases to look like they've done their job. And the press, frankly, is complicit because it repeats these phony numbers and the public mm -hmm. says, oh, look at them sort of sticking to the... And so I, I do think that watching that money carefully is important because I think, you know, questions about how it's spent. Once the denouement has appeared to play out, you know, once all of the companies, all the settlements, all the deals are done, that's when people need to really get vigilant about where do those dollars go. Yeah, yeah. Well, Patrick, I tell you, I got to the end of your book and my blood is boiling. When you read about Purdue Pharma taking, what, $40 billion of revenue, and then the Sacklers taking out over $10 billion and putting it into offshore accounts so that they can make the company go bankrupt and thereby avoid any responsibility, and the way they game the system and reach to members of Congress and the Justice Department, and that last little bit about the bankruptcy court up in Westchester, which is where you live, where I grew up, and there's a way in which Purdue Pharma can pick the judge they want who's known to be sympathetic to, you know, bankruptcy arguments that are going to favor them. The utter corruption of the thing is just absolutely infuriating. Anyway, I have to say, your book is fantastic. It is a fantastic page turner. I mean, I read it over the past week. I loved it. And I'm sure that people who are much more removed from this issue than you are, are going to love it as well. I hope you keep writing on this drug. Do you have plans for other drug writing Nothing after this one? We'll see. I'll probably do something very different next, but, uh, but I'm, I, I never stay away for long. But listen, it's great to see you here. And thank you very much for this book. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Adelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Aviv Bar Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. 
If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.